Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 33 of the Melissa Rx Scripts podcast, and thanks for listening. Well, recently, the Otis family and pharmacy and healthcare lost a legend, Dr. Joseph A. Otis, who served as ASHP CEO for 37 years, from 1960 to 1997. Well, I was fortunate to work closely with Dr. Otis early in my career, when he served as the first chair of the PTCB Board of Governors during our early days of the Pharmacy Technician Certification Board. He was a champion for pharmacy technicians and an inclusive and visionary leader. ASHP past president, Janet Carmichael, and I talked about Dr. Otis on the Melissa Rx Scripps podcast, episode 28, recorded a month before his passing. I celebrate Dr. Otis's life and legacy and just say thank you for his many, many contributions. Well, now on today's podcast, I'll be talking with Dr. Jimmy Hatton Kolpeck. Jimmy and I are going to be discussing many things, including her leadership experiences and passion for mentoring. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Jimmy and then also tell you about her experience, her career, and her many varied experiences in life in general. Well, Jimmy Hatton Kolpeck currently serves as president of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, ACCP and is a longtime University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy professor, practicing and conducting research on the care of patients with neurological injury and post-ICU syndrome. Jimmy also was elected as Distinguished Scholar and Fellow in the National Academies of Practice Pharmacy Academy. In 2019, she was the recipient of the University of Kentucky Paul F. Parker Award. I can't wait to learn more on that one. And just a fun fact that Jimmy and I connected recently through the APHA House of Delegates process. We were on a webinar together and then offline connected. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that we struck up a friendship the last few months and look forward to diving deeper in conversation with her today. Well, Jimmy, thanks for being here with me today. So, you know, as we get started, can you tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, about your family, and maybe a brief overview of your career experiences? Thank you, Melissa. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. But before I start, I just want to also share in honoring Dr. Otis's legacy and thank you for acknowledging his life. Obviously, we've all been touched by people who have really had the courage to drive a new direction and change path and open doors for so many of us over the years. And uh, he he made such a difference for all of us. So yes, uh, we sure very much appreciate what he meant in, in pharmacy and in our lives. So for my uh, life experiences, I am a first-generation college grad. I did grow up in Kentucky, and I uh, had an opportunity to go to the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy, which at the time would have been my only opportunity. It's not like uh, I had our family had resources to really send me anywhere I may wish to go. I happen to feel like that's an important part of my story because I had no idea of the 
incredible opportunity I was having uh, to go to this school. Yeah. Uh, there were so many pharmacy leaders and uh, changers and programs happening. And of course, I was simply a student there just hoping to pass and get my degree and be able to open a drugstore is what I thought was going to be a part of my life at that time. I had the privilege of learning about pharmacy from a lady who continues to inspire me, and it is uh, Gloria Hartman Doty, who took me on in high school and allowed me to work with her in an outpatient pharmacy setting. And that is how I actually got interested in pharmacy at all from a degree perspective. She showed me how important it is for what we do day to day in speaking and communicating with patients. She showed me how to use sign language and a variety of interview techniques uh, just as a part of her day-to-day -day work. So that was an important part of the opportunities I had there before I actually got the chance to work with some other uh, leaders in pharmacy that I'm sure we'll talk about more moving forward. But certainly getting to work with Bob Rapp, who was part of my educational journey, and Bob Bluen, who both of whom were part of my residency program directors, as well as my courseroom teachers. And then finally, uh, under Paul Parker as a resident. His, one of his last residents, I, I sort of joke about that. We, we sort of wonder whether we're the reason Paul decided <laughs> to retire or not. But that said, he was, he was a powerful influence for all of us. So those were important parts of just doing, you know, taking a step. As I mentioned, I, I really thought I was opening a pharmacy. And when I entered into the College of Pharmacy, I became exposed to a lot of the different things that happen in pharmacy beyond just what I had seen in uh, the outpatient pharmacy at UK Healthcare under Mrs. Doty's influence and started learning about clinical pharmacy and pharmacy research. And that's where uh, it ended up at that time, the doctor of pharmacy was a, a post-bac degree for some of us. So I made the decision that was something I wanted to pursue and then had the chance to do the residency and ultimately was uh, given the chance to have the ASHP fellowship in nutritional support as another CAP experience for me after the residency before I went on to my first pharmacy job at St. Louis College of Pharmacy. Being a young team of faculty there, including uh, Sheldon Holstead was on that group with me as a, someone that we together were finding our way through starting up a new doctor of pharmacy program at the St. Louis College of Pharmacy and working through clinical pharmacy launch and research and education together. So I met uh, Sheldon that way and also uh, Dr. Ann Lesko Channer. These are two very special friends of mine that continue to be powerful influences in my life. I did come back to Kentucky after a few years at St. Louis, and from there I've stayed and been just thrilled to have a chance to work in that uh, environment with leaders in pharmacy and have opportunities to inherit a lot because of the changes they made in clinical pharmacy and the efforts they put down for us to have the chances that we did have during that early part of my career, which was in the 90s when we were getting started with a lot of the work in neurotrauma and that space, critical care. Well, I'd love that you shared that you're a first-generation college graduate, which I also am first-generation college graduate. And one of my goals are like kind of foundational to our podcast and our community is to widen the path. So, you know, I think you sharing that and then talking about that 
University of Kentucky was the option, you know, for you, but boy, what a good option to have for sure. When, you know, you look at the Kentucky blue and the legacy of leadership there, which we'll, you know, dive a little deeper in, and then in the next part of our discussion, but, you know, I just loved hearing that and loved hearing about um, St. Louis college of pharmacy. I'm really excited that Dave Allen is going to be going down there. If, I think that's kind of right in process right now as we're mm-hmm. recording this, but I think he is the right leader for the right time for that, you know, very prestigious institution. And I look forward to what he's going to do next in his tenure. Well, you know, it's been a challenging time in our world, but there's also during these difficult last 14 months or so been some silver linings. You know, we've been able to have some focus time with family. There's been innovation. You know, people have been working on hobbies. What are some of the fun things that are going on in your life right now? Well, I I am really blessed to have two children who are grown. Uh, my son is graduating this coming week from the University of Kentucky in chemical engineering. So we're preparing for that phase in his life. He is going to be pursuing graduate work. So I'm very excited about that. My daughter uh, is a nurse and my uh, son-in-law is an engineer, an electrical engineer. And the reason I share that is because between uh, my daughter and son-in-law, we now have two little granddaughters and one of whom is playing I Am Third Soccer. And she's four years old. How fun. Oh my goodness. So we are having the best time watching four-year-olds learn how to play soccer. And Josh, my son-in-law is the coach. And that means my daughter is the coach's wife. And it's very, it's so fun every Saturday morning. That's something we've been doing. That has just been just a really fun thing. So that's been a great opportunity to have fun. And Also, I enjoy playing cards. My mom and her whole family taught me a game called Euchre when I was growing up that we played with my dad and all her family. So now my son is playing that. We've been visiting mom and doing that now that we can actually get out a little more. And uh, so very thankful that we have our vaccines and are able to spend more time together. And then, of course, the the weather in Kentucky right now is amazing and what seeing the horses and seeing things open back up with Keeneland opening and the Derby, it just feels like a lot of good things are happening to get excited about. Yeah, it feels very hopeful, I would say yes. right now. And, you know, I echo my nieces play soccer. They are nine and it has just been fun to be on the sidelines for them and to hear them talking about scoring goals or, you know, whatever's happening with the teams and, and all of that, you know, really, really fun times. And I, I know Kentucky is always beautiful, but this time of year, especially before it's too hot, I would think is just like fun to be outside. It really is. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, you know, in your introduction, I talked about that in 2019, you were named the recipient of the Paul F. Parker Award, which is given annually to a past resident of the University of Kentucky Residency Program, or someone who has been involved with the success of the program. So congratulations, because that is just a huge, huge honor. Tell me more about the legacy of Paul Parker and what did this award mean to you? So I I truly don't know how to even start saying what it meant to me as having been someone who benefited because of all that Paul brought to the University of Kentucky. And the more you learn about Paul's life, and the visionary leadership he brought to our profession. It's an amazing thing to even have your name linked to him on any level, certainly 
uh, I never thought that I would have the chance to be a recipient of this award that carries his name. I was just glad to have an R number, yeah, <laughs> which is a part yeah. of our program, yeah, yeah. and just to be invited to participate. So obviously, you know, when you, one of the best parts about receiving the award was the chance to go back and revisit Paul's contributions and read some of the papers that he wrote when he received the Whitney Award and some of these award presentations where he gave a talk and he talked about our profession and his vision that was so much broader than I ever understood. His commitment to pharmacists being excellent in providing patient care independent of where they practice. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just about hospital pharmacy. It was about community. It was about clinics. It was about bringing the best that you have in your science to transforming medication outcomes for our patients. And he was so visionary in the words that he used and selected as he drove that vision. And honestly, to receive it in 2019, you know, right before we got into the full 2020 chaos that we were now slowly emerging from, not just from a social justice problem and recognition of the challenges of so many of our people of color, our, those who struggle socioeconomically and understanding social injustice and racial injustice, but also learning more about the needs of the LGBTQ community, all of these different things that I started hearing more and more about and learning and understanding more through our student body, through our dean at the college, the university, and then going back and reading Paul's writings and realizing the way that he described universal commitment to caring for all patients everywhere. And I was so moved by that. And so honestly, I feel like that to me, the award meant to me that I understand how important it is to live into your values and to really open the door for the future and give people the chance to learn from one another, to be stronger and to be creating a stronger future, regardless in health, health equity, but also in mentoring and particularly the way pharmacy is at the forefront of get, making that happen. And I think we've seen that in 2020. I think pharmacists have been amazing in the hospital as well as through the vaccines and the clinics and the, the stories that they've shared. So Paul's vision really came home to me because I had a chance to step back and really look at what his life was as I created my acceptance speech for that particular luncheon that we had. And I just grew to respect him even more. I didn't know that was possible, but I realized what a visionary leader he was. He and Dr. Walton and a whole group of them that really created created a setting for all of us yeah. to be able to be transforming practice and continue to push that status quo. Yeah. I think in my career, I was able to meet him maybe once or twice, but Dr. John Gans, who was APHA CEO for many years and served on the board with PTCB, and I consider him a strong friend and mentor, he talked about Paul. And so that mm. was always good learning for me to hear about who had been influential to him and icons in pharmacy to him and what that looked like. And 
you know, he just talked about, as you described, Paul's broader vision and how he could see things playing out and, you know, what that would look like. And, you know, I think you touched on it. And in my opening remarks about Dr. Otis, you know, I would just share with our community, with our listeners today, that if there's someone out there that's influenced you, a preceptor, a mentor, a professor, you know, someone you heard at a conference or whatever, reach out and let them know. I mean, I, I can imagine that you shared certain things and I did let Dr. Otis know how influential and especially in the early days with PTCB when we navigated some tough challenges, how much I appreciated that. And, you know, when I've been recognized in the profession, I always try to reach out to my mentors, especially people in the early days who believed in me and saw something in me before I even did. Yes. But I think the idea of letting them know when they're around either the impact that they had or something that they said, because, you know, I think for people like, like Paul or John or, or Dr. Otis, it's so in their DNA, it's who they are. Mm -hmm. And it's not always like these huge things. Of course, like the innovations that they created, I think that makes a difference, but it's also like us just daily observing them, being with them, seeing the kind of people that they are, and then how, you know, that instructs us or informs us moving forward. I've found that's been really, really helpful. I couldn't agree with you more. And I do think the idea of sharing the impact of someone while you can is an important piece of that legacy uh, to help them be encouraged because I don't think they do it for that reason. I think it's what drives their, their internal system, their passion. And we've been blessed because of their courage to push the envelope and create. I mean, if you think about it, Paul was like, I think he was like 37 years old when he was the president of ASHP and started some of these organizations. And you think, my goodness, he's envisioning residencies. He's talking about putting pharmacists on rounds with doctors when pharmacists were in the basement. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, and it's like he didn't care. And and what a difference he's made. Because and we still enjoy that. So it really gives us a lot to think about in our positions when we have to think about, all right, so what's next? How do we create that same opportunity to let other people live out a better career and a more fulfilling career in this profession because of what we might be able to choose to do on a day-to-day -day basis, living into our values and pushing those because these people have really shown us the power of what that's done. And, and I certainly know that it's changed my life because of these individuals that I'd never met or would not have known had I not had a chance to be fortunate enough to go to College of Pharmacy where they were and where I got to interact with them routinely. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I think that's a nice segue into Let's talk a little bit more about your AACP leadership journey. You know, this is your presidential year. And so how did you first become involved with ACCP? And, you know, I know a kind of a common thread in your career has been um, bridging healthcare gaps. We've touched on that a little bit. So tell me more about your key priorities and your leadership journey. Well, thank you. I, I, my opportunities at ACCP came because of the fact that many of the faculty that I was working with were so invested in making sure that we understood the impact of scholarly, evidence-based practice. Because at that time, of course, if you couldn't justify your recommendation on rounds, it wasn't going to happen. Right. So you had to understand how, where it is the evidence. And if the evidence didn't exist, then you need to create it. So 
they became, you know, they were a lot, several of them, Tom Foster, Bob Rapp, uh, several of them were founders with the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and part of that team. So they were obviously very invested in each of us understanding the importance of presenting our science at these meetings. So early on as residents and early in my uh, academic career, uh, this was the place because it was small enough that you had a lot of opportunity for interaction. And of course, you had the Joe DePiro's, the uh, Gary Matsky's, the, the Bill Evans, all of these big names that were really transforming pharmacy science and practice and education there yeah. at the meeting. And they walked up to your poster and they actually asked you questions <laughs> and talked to you. So it became a real opportunity to see people who were leaders in our profession and, and sit at a table with them on committees and other things. ACCP supported my career initially through that, but also they had some research awards that I was able to secure that made a big difference for me in terms of uh, my tenure pursuit at being in an academic tenure position. Obviously, getting funded research was an important part of that. So ACCP's early career awards, I was able to have a few of those, which meant you got a lot of constructive feedback. You were given a lot of mentoring, but you also were able to publish and get your work out there. And that was key. And from there, it it goes to the opportunity to work in the PRN, and I was in the critical care group, which is a lot of strong leaders there, the Brad Boucher's, the Brian Ersteds, the all these leaders, Judy Jacoby, you know, we were in there trying to figure out critical care and board certification and all types of things before uh, that was really, all we had was BCPS. Yeah, I was going to say before it was like the thing it is now, right? Yes, exactly. So, so you really had a chance to grow with others uh, who were so gifted and strong in their own areas, and we just leaned on one another. So through the PRN, it happened, and then eventually I had the chance to work with the Board of Trustees, and I was so excited when I was elected to that, and I was able to serve on the Board of Trustees as an elected trustee, and then the treasurer, and finally the chair of that. And one of the most unique opportunities through ACCP was the gift of hearing from Dr. Sheldon Holstead after so many years uh, being apart from the St. Louis College of Pharmacy. But when he called me to talk to me about the Research and Scholarship Academy program, which when he asked me if I would consider being a part of the leadership of that, if I would be the director for that academy, and I I just thought that was such an inspiring thing to see the way that the circle Yeah, that's turns. like a full circle moment, right? <laughs> right, it really was. And obviously, research and scholarship is something I feel very strongly about. I think it's, again, an area where we can open the doors and eyes of our own members to help them see this is a space they can be successful in. You just have to have the right tools. And of course, Gary Yee uh, was the person who envisioned this program uh, initially. And obviously, uh, being able to inherit such a strong program from someone of such stature and respect, I was, I was truly honored. And I was working with that group up until the time that I was allowed the opportunity to be slated for the current office I hold as the president. 
and I'm ecstatic to have that chance because this is an organization that I have had. It's, it's truly transformed my career in so many ways and not just the organization itself, but the people, the members, and the way that they have lived out the shared values across all the areas of practice, education, and research. And I've had a chance to benefit from all of those. And I hope that we can always be that organization for people who want to pursue that and still be approachable where people can walk up at the meetings and talk to you. And, and it's, it's something very special. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate you sharing your journey. And I think it's interesting too, that some of those pieces you were involved in with the Board of Pharmaceutical Specialties, like early on, you know, and I think it's always interesting to hear reflections or for our listeners to know that sometimes things that are so like big and baked and, you know, people were like, well, of course, has that always been like that? And, you know, you just described that it was an evolutionary process. And then I love that your connections from St. Louis came back and were full circle. ACCP has a legacy of leaders that I've worked with over the years that I respect so much, like Bob Ellenboss, Mike Maddox, and Ed Webb, who I've known for many years. Oh, you know, yes. there's just such a neat, interesting group of people. And I think you highlighted that, you know, you just need to find wherever it's the best fit for you. And that, you know, sometimes it can be some early projects and then you get to know the work of the group and get to know others. And then sometimes you're brought in on other things, but it's like, just get started, you know, just try something and do it. And, and then when your network, when someone calls and asks, say yes. Well, you know, when we've looked back in the past year or so, you've highlighted some of the change, you know, we've dealt with COVID, we've dealt with racial injustice, economic um, constraints, all those kinds of things. But there was also a big thing that happened in pharmacy. And, you know, last year, I think it was in the summer, August of 2020, you know, women pharmacists sparked what really was a national conversation on sexual harassment. And the pharmacy community throughout that was really challenged to do better. So tell me more about your role getting these important stories heard by others and the leadership taken by ACCP and other pharmacy groups as we kind of work to navigate through this really, really important issue. Yeah, what an important conversation. What a group of inspiring, courageous women who decided that this conversation had to happen. And, and the most powerful thing about what their courage showed us was their motivation was it related to the people coming up behind them when they saw trainees and students who had been affected by a culture of silence where voices were intimidated or bullied or harassed and, and you couldn't talk and you wouldn't talk. We, we tend to say this frequently about pharmacy being a small world and that, that's very true, but it can sometimes work to intimidate others from sharing if something has happened or they feel afraid of saying an individual experience has happened with someone that may or may not be someone your mentor is working with or and you so they think they can't talk about it and this is what spawned this discussion and why they contacted me I was I was so privileged to be asked to be on a phone call with women from across the country who decided that it was time for this conversation to move ahead and they wanted, they called on all pharmacy organizations that we needed to be aware that this is happening and reach out and come up with ways as organizations to, to, 
empower our members, not just the accused, but the, the ones who are the victim of that and create educational strategies, create protection strategies for accountability, education in terms of what to do if this happens, recognizing it and knowing what the steps are to take and to not be afraid. And so that moved us into our whole discussion about how do you have an opportunity to create a culture of belonging where voices can be heard and respected and valued, where people's experiences in life are able to be shared. And that takes a lot of comfort and trust for someone to be able to share something so very difficult for them with you as a leader. And so in order for them to feel that comfort, we have to create environments where they're safe and those discussions can happen. And then we have to acknowledge where we can make a difference. And that may be in the area of being an advocate, an ally, it may also as an individual, because it certainly has to start with you as the individual. But that individual voice speaking up for those who have no voice at the table is what begins the conversations that create some discomfort at times. They make us nervous. They make us look at ourselves and our own unconscious biases and sensitivities that we can be defensive about. But those conversations have to happen because if they don't happen, then we can't identify the gaps and the structural issues that exist in our profession, be it in education, be it in healthcare equity, accessibility, be it in our science, in our who we cite in papers, who we invite to the platform, who's slated on our organizational officers and boards. But these are long-standing challenges that exist for us. So we have to think together as a group about how we invite others to the table, invite other members, invite women to speak about these issues, and then help us solve the problem help us create the solutions and understand where we can do better. And I think, you know, it was so powerful to see ASHP, APHA, and ACCP come out about this together, saying this must stop. And each of us are on a different journey towards that healing process for our members and creating the right language for where we can step up and lean in to helping repair the consequences of what has happened and trying to create better systems so that it doesn't happen again. And I think that that is acknowledging the courage of these individuals. And to me, it was such an honor that, that I was selected to listen and hear what had happened. And as I say, it was not about just Jimmy, because this is the Brian Erstead was crucial and Suzanne Nesbitt and Mike Maddox and the whole ACCP board who was a part of saying, we need to hear this and we, we don't know what to do with this, but we've got to figure out a way to work through it. And they weren't afraid to challenge themselves with coming up with some 
potential ways that we could make a difference. And we continue on that journey today. And it's not just about the gender and sexual harassment issue. It's not just about women. Obviously, men and those who have different gender identities, a lot of people deal with intimidation, harassment on the job, uh, be it from a person who's in authority or maybe even patients. So we have to just start these conversations together and we have to create an environment where people feel like those conversations can happen. Well, thank you for your work and thank you for sharing what was involved with the journey on it. And it's just such important work. And as you described, you know, these are difficult conversations. But, you know, last year when I had um, Lynette Bradley Baker on, talking about some of the racial injustice and social issues we were dealing with. I remember she said, but the more that we have the difficult conversations, the easier they become. And I do feel like on this one too, I also reflected, you know, as some of this information came to light and, you know, I had had on my podcast earlier, Dr. Bri Brianne Bakken with Medical College of Wisconsin, and she worked on the pharmacy workforce study in mm. 2019. And, you know, this was a topic that they gathered data on related to harassment, bullying, and um, discrimination, and how pharmacists experience that. And, you know, it, it was the first time that that data had been collected. And now there's a number, a series of articles that are coming out. And, you know, I think it's even more pervasive because a lot of it's not reported at all. And, and we know that, you know, that there were brave people who did come forward, but that there are so many people who don't come forward either out of fear, concern, shame, you know, they don't feel anything's going to happen. And so I think the topic itself is so much broader, but I think us also thinking through of the systems that are in place, like you mentioned, and then also how we as individuals can support when these voices come forward, um, provide support to them that, you know, what they're saying matters and we want to hear it and try to figure out, you know, what's the best approach. And I am encouraged by the pharmacy organizations, what they've done in the past year, and do acknowledge we have more work to do, but I think that was, you know, huge that they, that people, the organizations looked at it pretty quickly and said, hey, let's get some statements out there. Let's get some policy change. Let's get some education out there. Let's really work on this to try to really make a difference. I agree. Well, you know, this kind of relates to what we were just talking about, and it's been a thread through our discussions this afternoon, you know, you have a passion related to encouraging the personal and professional growth of others. And I can really hear that as you're talking about your work with residents and with students and, and broader people that you're engaged with. So, you know, how would you say this, this disruptive year, which has really been full of disruption, has helped you evolve as a mentor? And, you know, it's really been a disruptive and chaotic time. So what does that look like for you? And what have you learned? This is a such a powerful question. I think about my own personal journey that's been disrupted as it relates to how I thought I understood things and then realized how little I did know, especially when it came to systemic racism yeah. and the history of this in our country. Uh, I have sought books I've, I've read uh, some very powerful books that have helped me have insight about really, you know, what, what has happened as it relates to the whole history of our country. And that started really rocking. That was disruptive to me. 
I was surprised to learn about the things that had been a part of other people's lives. I've, I've listened to podcasts. I've heard people speak into these spaces and learn so much from our colleagues who have had families and, and histories within their own personal journey to become a part of our profession and what they had to overcome. And I realized the concept of privilege, the concept of microaggression and impact versus intent and things such as this. So that's been one space. And from that, I've been able to really learn along with the other members of the Board of Regents about what it takes to become an inclusive leader and how we have to do some self-excavations of our own biases and our own places that we cover and hide our, our real story because it's easier that way. And we may not bring our full selves to work. And when we, when we have that kind of armor leadership then of protection, it, it mirrors that to others and it creates a setting where they're less comfortable talking with us. So we really have to find a way to vulnerable leadership where we don't have to know it all. We just have to accept that we're going to learn together as a team. And that's something that I have seen and I continue to watch as our board is working through some of these skills in ACCP so that's been one thing that's really been a powerful part of this. And all of us have realized we have so many spaces to learn more from one another and the experiences we've had. The second part has been to see the impact of this on our students. I have not had a chance because of us being in such a virtual environment. Zoom has its downsides, but it also can have its upsides because on Zoom with, with audio faces of pain can be seen. Whereas in a classroom of a large number of students, you may not see the wincing. You may not see that isolated individual, be it the Asian American Pacific Islander who's struggling with, with the craziness we're seeing and this horrible violence against them right now. The, the person who is of a different religious faith that struggles because of our case example that we use, or the individual of color, or who has come from a place where there are social determinants of health affecting access to their health opportunities for their family, or those who don't have a teacher in front of them that looks like them. We don't get to see that when we're in a big room and we're all about the message. But on some of these times that we've had through Zoom, I've watched as these students show these things and then been able to follow up and ask, how are you doing? Not because I know what to do, but because I can see that there is something there that needs to be, they just need to know that they've been seen and someone's there for them. And I have heard uh, students, uh, tell stories that have shocked me about things being said to them about their race or their gender identity. And just when they can share that with you and you can say, that's not okay, that's not acceptable. How, how can I respond that shows I'm standing with you against this? What, what would that look like to you? Because I'm there, we'll do it. And don't, you know, you need to know that, that this can't happen and we can't let these things happen and it's not right. And I'm sorry that, that someone felt they could say that to you. 
I try to have those kinds of discussions as a follow-up. And I, I wouldn't probably have had those otherwise, honestly, because when you're in a room, my course I teach is 129, 139 people. But in Zoom, you see things. And when you're able to meet with them by Zoom, or office hours or Zoom, you, you, you get a chance to engage and, and see things that they don't want to say but their eyes are showing you. You can just see it and you know. So I guess to me, it's disrupted a lot about how I think about the courage to engage and get into a zone that I don't have the answers. I don't even know how to identify with the full scope of the pain that they have experienced, be it harassment from the sexual harassment or gender issue to violence to even the COVID situation with some of them and the struggles they have with loss of family members. So, and certainly this isn't necessarily unique to any one group. We also see the impact of opioid use disorders on the lives of our students losing family members. That's been going on for a while, but yeah. I haven't really had the chance to see on their faces what they're living and, and touch and base that way. So, you know, there's always something good that comes from things. And certainly there's, there's going to be a lot of things on the other side of this pandemic that we're going to look back on and realize that we learned so much. Even though it was virtual, there were things that we were able to get stronger in because it did disrupt so much of what we did day to day without really being invested in one another the way that I think we will come out differently because of this. Yeah, well, courage to engage and just reinforcing that you have been seen so, so powerful. And thank you for sharing that. You know, our, our time together is drawing to a close this afternoon. So when I have these conversations with my Melissa Rx Scripps guests, I typically ask, while I have you, is there one prescription or life lesson you'd like to share with others or, or comment on in the spirit of Melissa Rx Scripps? And you've covered so many good ones already. I think if I just could put it in, in one thing, I challenge all of us in pharmacy to really think about creating that culture of belonging as an individual, as an organization, as a business. Let's respect and listen and value each other's opinions and, and learn from the experiences that others have brought uh, and what their journeys have carried them through. And let's get everyone to the table in one way or the other, if that means being an ally for them or uh, being their voice. But we can't be their voice if we don't hear their voice. And for them to share that story, they have to feel like they belong and they're valued and respected. Wow, I love that. Getting everyone to the table and then reinforcing that they're valued and respected. Well, Jimmy, I just want to say thank you. This has been really powerful, us talking again today. I just want to say this is the Melissa Rx Scripps podcast. I want to thank our listeners and encourage you to subscribe. And I also want to provide a special shout out to Kate Cruz, my producer with Executive Podcast Solution, who helps make the podcast happen. Thanks so much. Thank you.